The revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. As thousands of people have taken to the streets to protest the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, Iranian officials have repeatedly shut down Internet services and disrupted social media sites, including Instagram, Telegram, and WhatsApp. The country's virtual private networks, or VPNs, are also being shut down. To quell dissent, the Iranian government has also been developing its own local Internet services to replace international online sites. The protests, which erupted in mid-September, have centered around the killing of Ms. Amini after she was arrested by morality police for improperly wearing a hijab. The rallies have been led primarily by young women who refuse to accept the Islamic Republic's restricted laws and have sparked demonstrations throughout the globe. With us to talk about the issue is Benjamin Rad, Associate Professor of Politics at Pomona College. He spoke with Digital Village's co-host Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Since September, Iranians have been fiercely protesting their government over the killing of Masa Amini for apparently not wearing her hijab properly. And in response, the government has shut down several social media sites. What kind of impact has the shutdowns had on the protests? And what is the trajectory of free speech rights in the country if blockages to online speech continue? That's a great question. Let's start with the second part. Currently, there are no free speech rights to really speak of. To the extent that free speech is a liberty that Iranians enjoy, it's one that they themselves have to create. The government does not provide it to them and works actively in any way it can to block that. The impact of the arrests and the subsequent murder while in custody of Ms. Amini ended up galvanizing and acting as a symbolic force for the Iranian youth who saw consistently a regime, especially one under the new president, Raisi, as one that was taking even further steps to curb their already limited abilities to speak freely and protest against the government and just to voice their concerns. So all of a sudden it gave them a flashpoint, something to mobilize around. We've seen this in, in recent years throughout the Middle East. We think about the origins of the Arab Spring, which had to do with a fruit cart vendor setting himself on fire. And in the 2009 Green Movement protest in Iran, it was Neda Agha Sultan, another young Iranian woman, who, while observing a protest, was shot in the chest and killed by regime forces. And that video ended up going viral and serving as the flashpoint for further unrest and further protests. So really, it has become very much the spark, the catalyst that took already frustrated and disaffected youth and now gave them something visibly to really point to and say, this is a physical manifestation, a demonstration of what this government has done to us, what it continues to do, and the quality of life that it denies us. So what sites have been shut down and which ones are still up? This is part of the challenge. For the last few years, the Islamic Republic has been building its own private internet 
which is called the National Information Network or NIN. And the goal of this was as sanctions and other external powers and external efforts were being made to shut Iran out from internet and information technology system, they created their own. And in part, they're able to also duplicate a lot of the services that people would otherwise use. Things like, for example, Gmail, instant messaging, social media networks. We'll see specifically, they've cut off services like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And so and YouTube. And what we've seen instead is that they've allowed to different extent WhatsApp, Instagram, and Telegram to function. When it turns out that those services were being used to share and spread information about what was happening with the protest and to mobilize activists and together and to criticize the government, they've alternated between periods where they would shut down these services. So WhatsApp, Instagram, and Telegram completely. Or when they realized that a lot of the members of the public actually need things like Instagram to run their businesses. A lot of them, the same way that Americans use Instagram, influencers, retailers, others have entire, their their entire business model is built on using these social networks domestically, mind you, not for any political opposition, but purely for, for their own businesses. And the government also needed to use some of these apps as well. So it realized the better thing, the better option was to throttle access to them, where the um, amount of data that was allowed to pass through these networks became so restricted that it would take you, let's say, minutes to view an Instagram post or to send a WhatsApp message. So people trying to talk to each other via audio using WhatsApp would find the connection would drop or there'd be a lag or a delay or an echo or something like that. So by throttling, they're able to still keep the platforms up and running but make it so miserable for Iranians to use. And it would push them instead towards this internal internet, the NIN, which is being offered for free at full speed. That platform, NIN, comes with its own set of apps, messaging apps, social media apps that Iranians are encouraged to use, which the government controls, monitors, Mm -hmm. has full access to. That sounds really chaotic. Absolutely. It's inconsistent is what it is. And when you create inconsistency, when you make the tools of rebellion and protest unreliable, it can frustrate those movements. So Twitter is still up, kind of. Twitter is one of the ones that's blocked, apparently, but Iranians are still getting access to Twitter. They're finding workarounds, and we can discuss what those are. What is the count right now in terms of how many have been killed or injured at this point? So as of two days ago, human rights groups based out of Iran have put the tally at about 300 killed, Everyone estimates that number to be actually higher. It's difficult to say, but they estimated about 300 killed. 10% of them have are, are children considered 17 or under. And it speaks to how the youth movement has really taken hold of this protest. Absolutely, which is sort of the double-edged sword for the Iranian government in that it understands that the youth are the ones leading this and yet to crack down on the youth harder than on, let's say, adults really ends up looking badly for them, especially as reports of what they do to the youth make their way out. Tell us about Masa Amini. Who was she and why was she killed? She was a Iranian of Kurdish origin, and she was visiting a family member in Tehran. And apparently she was detained um, on the street because she didn't have her hair fully covered. Now, If you look at any picture or video coming out of Iran in the last few months or years, in fact, you'll see that nothing that she did was out of the ordinary. With Raisi, the new president coming into power recently, he decided one of the things he wanted to do was was enforce 
more strictly the restrictions on how women appear and present themselves in public. So having their hair fully covered or at least more covered than had been tolerated before was something he wanted to reinforce and reintroduce into society. So for whatever reason, she was targeted, not because she had done anything in particular from what we can tell, not because she was any figure that was of importance or a threat, but let's say there's a group of women walking down the street. Maybe she's walking a few feet ahead of someone else. And just like a random police officer might pull one person for speeding and not another, that's just who they happen to see. And depending on who the personalities are, the police officers, the morality police, some of them are very angry and we don't know what she said to them other than maybe, look, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. Everyone else around me is doing the same thing. And they unleashed, we understand, a barrage of beatings and attacks uh, and blows to the head, especially once in the police vehicle. At least that's what we've we've understood based on the trauma that was observed to her skull, all because she was abiding by restrictions that other Iranian women were doing. But for whatever reason, she was the one picked out. So unfortunately, these incidents happen against women all the time. But why do you think her killing had resonated with so many people, not just in Iran, but all over the world? We are in from 2017, 2018 onwards in, you know, in the post Me Too move era where there's a greater awareness for women who are either mistreated or not heard from or not given a platform to speak as to sort of the, either the discrimination or the injustice or the lack of rights or freedom that they suffer, especially in developing countries and countries that are less democratic. This is all sort of part of that greater awareness that in 2021, 2022 and going forward, there is no reason for women to be treated unjustly in these societies relative to men, especially societies like Iran that like to present themselves as being relatively modern or abiding by basic human rights and principles. So the issue now becomes that why is this being tolerated? And as Iranian youth, young women especially, can see the lives that young women in other countries get to enjoy. And the freedoms that they have, especially relative to men, this has become something that they're acutely aware of. And they're now realizing why is this something that has to be acceptable here in our country, but is not tolerated elsewhere, but it is tolerated here. This has to end. And so I think you just saw a frustration emerge. And when young Iranian women post this stuff on social media and they get support from people all over the world, you can see how that momentum builds and leads to an outpouring of frustration and anger. That kind of makes sense then why the internet would be a target. Absolutely, because it is where activists and where those who are suffering can go and turn to internet and get international support. How common are these internet shutdowns? Because this is not the first, right? Since 2009, the Green Movement, which was some had deemed the Twitter revolution because a lot of it started on Twitter with how footage and communications were being shared between the protesters. The government learned from that incident and coupled with the sanctions that have been passed on Iran over the years by the United States, by the international community because of its nuclear program, you had Iran sort of ironically having to then build its own internet infrastructure for fear, knowing that it would be shut off from the outside world and getting the public to use this infrastructure, limiting access to the outside internet, so sporadically as it needed to do so. In 2018, when we had, under the previous Iranian president, Rouhani, when he came to power, the goal was to allow Western internet companies like Google and others to come into Iran and to to maybe do business and sort of set up similar to the China model, where they would provide services, but in a very state-controlled and limited way. 
And all of that was the difficulty for American or Western companies coming into Iran is that they would have to figure out how to balance their contracts with U.S. sanctions. And so because it was so stringent or unclear what they could or couldn't do, rather than risk violating U.S. sanctions, these Silicon Valley companies and other European tech companies decided they just weren't going to set up their services in Iran. It was too risky. There's great examples of this. The German tech company SAP, for example, a few years ago was fined $8 million for remote cloud services to be used by Iranian businesses, for example, not being careful enough to avoid the U.S. sanction system. So rather than take that risk, they just don't do it. And so what we've seen then is, is that without Western internet services, especially cloud services being used, being allowed under the sanction system, Iranian people are left to access these things at the whim of their regime. Whenever the regime allows access to it, it's there. And whenever they're denied access, whenever there's a uprising or there's some sort of social protest, either because of economic conditions, wages, poor response to natural disasters, the government doesn't want these things. So it'll throttle or shut down access to these services. And it's been doing so for the last four or five years with increasing frequency. That kind of leads me to the next question. Regarding the U.S. sanctions, there are some who say that in a way it kind of strengthened or gave Iran a reason to create its own kind of internet or intranet system. Would you agree with that? Some people had said this was an unintended gift to the regime. Absolutely. There's a, um, a software company called Lantern, which provides uh, circumvention tools that allows the Iranian people to circumvent, to go around restrictions, either using VPN or other uh, proxy methods. These sanctions make it difficult, even for countries like that, for companies like Lantern, to do what it needs to do to help. And this is where a revisiting of the sanctions specifically, allowing for exceptions, modifying it. There's a lot that, that the U.S. can do, both the State Department and Treasury, to modify these sanctions. For example, maybe allow companies to offer light versions of their apps that use less data, and allow cloud services to be used from Iran into the United States to provide the backbone for some of these messaging apps to do what they need to do. But these sanctions really make it difficult to do that. The Internet plays a huge role in everyday lives of Iranians. Can you tell us about that? And what kind of impact has there been to not have social media or very limited Internet, not just in terms of everyday transactions, everyday things they do, but just on the economy in general? Statistics that came out uh, about a year and a half ago show that about 80% of Iranians use the internet, specifically social media, in their everyday lives. We're not talking anything having to do with political protests. We're talking just for the same reasons that Americans will use social media to be social, to communicate with others, to promote a business, to act as influencers, to basically as a, as a blog or to sort of talk about their lives or what they're into. There are a lot of popular ones that we see here. There's a popular Instagram channel of an Iranian who goes and tries different restaurants in Iran and films himself doing so and then puts it on his Instagram and he talks about the different foods he's trying. It's very popular. Others who are talking about whatever cultural trend that they're observing, whether it's fashion or music, this is extremely, extremely common. And it's used not just by the public, it's used also by the government itself. Even when they, I've talked about natural disasters, the government will, for example, use Telegram to communicate with other government officials in responding to natural disaster crises. So there's a huge usage. I mean, we're talking again, 80% of the country uses the internet and social media 
to some degree or another. That's massive. And so you can understand that when you start throttling or restricting the internet as a whole, the impact it has domestically, which is why Iran can't just shut it off wholesale. Are there any studies on what kind of impact that has directly on the economy? I haven't seen any statistics from the last few years that show what impact that has had. Again, these are things that the Iranian government won't release necessarily, if assuming it does these surveys. The ones we've seen are all from government-affiliated groups. The U.S. company NetBlocks, they were able to determine that in, in November 2019, when there was a protest and the Iranian government shut down, it was costing the country $370 million a day to do that, both in terms of the cost of actually the effort that it took to shut it down, but really the loss of revenue to businesses and to the economy. $370 million a day. That was in 2019. You can imagine that number today is higher as more and more businesses use the internet, use social media for their growth and for their well-being. So that's a huge number on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Iran's solution to this is basically, again, trying to provide its own internet, trying to do what the NIN is doing. That way it can control completely all gateways so that if it shuts out the outside internet, the internal internet that is used for businesses to do transactions with each other in Iran, that would still remain. The NIN is about 90% complete is sort of the estimate that once it reaches 100%, Iran doesn't have to worry about an internet shutdown affecting its local economy. But for now, it is. How does Iran's efforts to control social media and the internet compare to the systems in place in China and Russia. It's similar now that Chinese have a far more robust internal internet system. And we know that their, for example, their search engines, their shopping platforms or messaging platforms, the Chinese have homemade equivalents that are very popular that the Chinese people use. And that it's something that is widely accepted in Russia. We see attempts to block these things have been very difficult. The Russian people are very much enjoy using Western social media platforms and Western apps. Iran, the homemade stuff, to put it mildly, has simply not taken off. There's statistics that talk about the app stores that, that have the Iranian equivalent of Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, for example. They pale in comparison to the number of downloads that, for example, the actual Instagram or Facebook or Twitter would get. And so... China has done a better job both of creating an, an internal network, but also getting its people to want to use the apps that it has created, that it has greater control over. Tell us about the virtual private networks. What are VPNs and how do they work? And are they still successful as a workaround? It's a software-based method that allows someone to hide their internet protocol, their IP address. So for example, when I'm accessing the internet from my home computer, I'm assigned a unique IP address and a server, let's say a, a company or a internet service provider or a search engine can identify me based on that IP address. And that's how they can, they can also send me ads or redirect me to websites based on where I live. What VPNs allow users to do is to basically encrypt or it spoofs, it masks what your IP address is. It goes through another server or goes through another process that will encrypt and so you then can access the internet using an IP address that either is not yours or that is completely blocked and not visible at all. VPNs are a very popular way not only to access the internet for social protest reasons, but also reasons just to do business. And 
you hear it oftentimes, Iranians have to play this game where at any given moment on their iPhone, for example, they might have anywhere from like three to 13 VPN networks and they have to switch between them because one will work for a few hours or a few days and it gets shut down and then another one pops up and then another one pops up. And so it's a sort of cat and mouse game of finding a VPN that will give them access to the outside. And that's, that's sort of the, what Iranians have had to do to get access to the, the broader Western-based internet. Well, isn't the perception that the world is so connected at this time that if they don't get to communicate through VPNs that they will find a way? Or, or is it possible that Iran can completely isolate the country internet-wise? So Starlink is a satellite-based internet service that it's owned by Elon Musk. And it consists of these low-orbit satellites in space, several of them. And in order to connect to these, you need a box. It's almost like a cable box with about a 12-inch wide dish. And once you have these, you need enough of them. But once you do, they're able to connect to a satellite-based system that the Iranian government really cannot block or do anything about. It can't restrict it, short of, let's say, jamming all satellite frequency, which would impact their own ability to enforce authority. So we've seen this work to tremendous success in Ukraine, where the Russians have knocked out Ukraine's domestic internet infrastructure, or even oftentimes, you know, even power. And the Ukrainians will use these satellite dishes, these Starlink devices that have been brought into the country to great effect and to great success. So that's one way, a very viable way that any U.S. administration can step up. It can allow for more of these devices. It, it can facilitate bringing in devices that allow them to bypass a terrestrial internet and use satellite-based technology. Now, there are concerns over a pending internet bill in Iran that will further curtail social media apps. What is the likeliness of this happening? Yeah, this is known as the protection bill, and it was proposed in 2021. The big part of it that's caused a huge cause for concern is it would criminalize the distribution, the selling, and the use of VPNs. And it would place control of Iran's internet gateways, which is basically the means by which Iranians would access the outside internet. That gateway, the control of it would be transferred to a new entity controlled by the Revolutionary Guards. And so it's taken out of any sort of domestic agency or corporation accountable to the president and into the Revolutionary Guard, which is accountable to the Supreme Leader. It's very likely that this will be past. There's a lot of opposition domestically from Iranian businesses and business organizations who fear that doing so would cripple their businesses that would have severe impact on economic growth within Iran. At this point, under Raisi and where he's been headed, I don't see how this bill wouldn't make its way through. And it seems very likely to do so. Despite the economic fallout, possibly. Absolutely. Because for the regime, it's a life or death issue. They would take the economic fallout because the alternative is the fallout and the collapse of the government by allowing this sort of unfettered access to VPNs. Right now, it's hard enough for the government to shut down every VPN. It's a frustrating game for them. They find a VPN, they block it. Another one comes up, they block that one. Here, they would simply just criminalize the behavior outright. Just like owning a satellite dish is illegal and criminal, you now would do the same thing with VPNs. And so the big part of this bill is that portion of it that would essentially criminalize this VPN clandestine network. What action has the Biden administration taken on this issue? 
And is it enough? What they've done is they have changed regulations recently that would give American tech companies more opportunity to offer services to Iranians without risking coming into conflict with U.S. sanctions. It has permitted activations of satellite links and other internet services. So again, Starlink is a great example. I think there was a, a State Department and the Treasury Department in late September, they specifically lifted sanctions that would allow some of these satellite-based technologies to go in. This is exactly how Starlink was able to be set up there. In early October, we saw evidence after a picture, a video was posted on social media of the first units making their way into Iran. They were smuggled in. So the Biden administration has worked to ease the specific sanctions that blocked import or the smuggling in of these types of devices. So there's a lot more they need to do other than just loosening these specific restrictions. What can tech companies and the international community do to help protesters? While they're waiting for the government to take the lead on easing sanctions, offering loopholes or removing certain restrictions to allow these services in or to improve connections between Iranians in the inside and those on the outside, these tech companies can make it easier for both diaspora Iranians and their supporters and local Iranians in, in, in Iran to circumvent this process. So, for example, if I want to use Instagram or if I want to use Signal or if I want to use Twitter and I'm finding that I'm blocked, those companies can help its users figure out, OK, here's what's going on. Here's why you're not able to send or receive messages. Here's other ways where you can do this. So these tech companies can take the lead in in informing users both inside and outside about what's going on, providing alternate means of getting their messages through, making sure those instructions are in you know Persian language as well. So offering support for their local users in Iran, they can offer light versions of these apps that are less data intensive. So when the government throttles the internet, these apps can still function and use less data, maybe agree on cutting down the ads or remove ads on these versions all together for these light versions so that they can do the, sort of the, the essential functions that they need to do. Signal being a secure messaging app, it's working with volunteer users who are helping to find ways around the Iranian restrictions. But as, in it's doing so, it's coming across these specific hurdles and obstacles. So for example, Iranian internet companies are blocking validation codes from being delivered over text message. So for example, if you're signing up for, for Signal, in order for it to verify that it's you, it'll say, hey, we're going to send you a verification code over text, input that into the app to confirm it's you. The Iranian government is blocking those messages from being delivered. So Google, on its part, is working on what it can do to help make these validations easier to access via Gmail or some other method. So it's an example of where these companies can work together to find ways around these validation procedures or these blocking procedures that the government puts into place. They can give users instructions on what else they can do. And at a minimum, tell them, hey, here's what's going on. You're not able to send something or receive something. Here's why. They're small, but they're very important steps that they can do. And also helping their clients. If you're Google or if you're a large tech company and you have a customer who's concerned about offering a service in Iran because they're going to come across violations of sanctions, explain to them through either FAQs or some other system where you say, hey, here's what you can do and here's what you cannot do and here are alternatives. So make it easier for individuals and businesses that want to access or support to be able to do so and understand what the current government restrictions are. Well, that wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. 
That was Pomona College Associate Professor of Politics, Benjamin Rad. He spoke with Digital Village's Leilani Elbano. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you online. online.